Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, g'day, I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is Better Make It Quick. Better Than Yesterday is the show. Three times a week, we're here in your podcast feed. Mondays, I have a fresh conversation with a brand new guest. Fridays, I'm here to check in with you. Wednesdays, Bree Steele, one of our producers here, she delves into the archives of Better Than Yesterday to bring you one of the episodes that she's really into that week. She's just kind of going through and finding apps that she's kind of fascinated by. And, you know, you know, a conversation essentially that's resonated with her from over the past nine years of making this show, this episode's to go all the way back to 2013. There's a lot of talk at the moment about the economy. Uh, interest rates are going in one direction. Wages are going in a different direction. The cost of living is going in an entirely different direction. There's a lot going on. The cost of living, boy. There's this talk of a recession. It's interesting. So today, we're going to have a chat, a very quick chat, with Dr. Richard Dennis. He is the Chief Economist and former Executive Director of the Australia Institute. He's a prominent Australian economist. He's an author. He's a public policy commentator. Richard first came on the show in 2020. It wasn't long after the COVID-19 pandemic began. A lot of fear about what would that be for the economy. Two years on, we are still all feeling the effects of the pandemic, uh, certainly financially, and as we're going through this third wave, or you know, riding this third wave, you know, we're definitely feeling that. So it is interesting to look back at what Richard said and comparing that to what did happen and what is happening right now. When the COVID-19 pandemic first hit, there was speculation. There was talk about what it might mean for our fight against climate change, because as we know, getting people to make sacrifices for climate change has always been hard. Uh, it is, but, you know, I'm, I'm accused of excessive optimism, but uh, I'm also usually accused of excessive cynicism, and I, I kind of wear both quite comfortably. I don't think we always have to wait till problems right in front of us. The You and I and the rest of the taxpayers in Australia are committed to spending $200,000 million, $200 billion dollars, to build 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet. So far-sighted are we that we are willing to spend more on that, more on that than any other purchase in Australian history, to fight a war 
against an enemy who might not exist at a point in the future that we're not certain of and at a time when we're not even sure that the technology we're building will even be useful. So when it comes to some problems, we have absolutely no problem taking an ounce of prevention instead of a pound of cure. And that's politics again. It's an act of politics. When it comes to defence, we think that prevention is better than cure. When it comes to climate change, we're told, strap in, it's going to be wild. And obviously with COVID-19, the Australian government has decided to listen to the science and err on the side of caution, a decision I wholeheartedly agree with. Obviously, Donald Trump has taken the exact opposite approach and Boris Johnson started down the denial approach and wound up too late in the science approach. So I understand why people get sort of frustrated and think, why don't politicians listen to science or why can't we make good long-run decisions? My answer doesn't make anyone happy because my answer is, well, sometimes we listen to science when we want to and sometimes we plan decades ahead when we want to. What politicians don't want to admit is that it's up to them to decide when they want to and when they don't. And we, we don't actually help ourselves saying if only they understood science, they'd tackle climate change. They understood science. That's why they just crushed the curve on COVID-19. They know how to plan ahead. That's why they spent $200 billion on subs we'll probably never use to go with the $20 billion worth of tanks we've never used. You know, we know how to do prevention, comma, when we want to. It's a political question. When do we want to? I love that answer, so don't worry. <laughs> I told you I'm cynical optimist. Mate, I love it. I love that answer, mate, I, I, and I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that you gave it. So when, like, not less than six months ago, we had our politicians talking about, I can't remember the exact line on childcare. It was like empathy we can't afford or something like that. Un, un, uh, un, unfunded empathy. Unfunded empathy. And here we are, not less than seven months later, suddenly out of the same mouth of the same politician comes, it's vital for the economy that we have childcare free for everyone. Yeah, You know, it's like I woke up one day, I was like, what sort of socialist paradise have I arrived in? What does it take for a politician who says one thing like that, not, not even a year ago, to suddenly go, oh shit, okay, yes, everyone gets free childcare? Uh, well, ultimately, you know, reality catches up to politicians, but they're pretty good. The best politicians are pretty good at kind of just skipping ahead of it so that the reality kind of never lands on them. You know, look at Trump. Like, you know, he's still pretending that everything's going swimmingly. It takes an enormous ego and a, a enormous arrogance, frankly, to kind of stare the country down and tell everybody that black is white. But that's the kind of person that it actually takes to run for president of the United States, indeed, prime minister of Australia. So how do they pivot like that? Well, firstly, they in this instance, they, they just have to. But the size and scale of the problem coming at them, you can't spin your way out of a pandemic. So I think the interesting thing for citizens watching this, it's like, you know, when you watch a magician do a trick slowly, you can figure out what they did. So if we watch really carefully what politicians have done, we can really understand something very important. When the Prime Minister was telling us a year ago that we, quote, couldn't afford to increase unemployment benefits, it was unfunded empathy, you just have to rerun the clock and, and substitute for the words couldn't afford with don't want to. 
It's just as simple as that. A year ago, the Prime Minister faced with a choice between spending money on increasing unemployment benefits or spending money on tax cuts, wanted to spend the money on tax cuts. Now, rather than say to the public, I'd like to help this group and I don't want to help that group, you know, like me or hate me, that's the choice I've made, good politicians actually conceal how powerful they are. They conceal the choices they have. They say, I have no choice. I have no choice at all. I, I have to cut taxes. I have to. If I cut taxes, it might look like I'm helping my preferred group of friends at the moment, but that's not it at all. That'll help grow the economy and then we'll be big and rich and then I'll be able to help the poor. It's not that I've made a choice here. It's that I have no choice. Once we understand that, that we're actually electing people to make those choices for us, we just need to hold them accountable for it. My kids could nag me and say, Dad, take me to Disneyland, and I can engage with them on why that seems like a crap idea to me. Or I could just lie to them and say, can't afford to. Truth is, I could afford to take them to Disneyland, but why have that debate? Why not just lie? (laughs) How old are they? How old are your kids? 12 and 9. Oh, man, you got to go before they – we went when G was 10. And yeah. she was just – just like that was the last three weeks of her life that she was young enough to enjoy it. Uh, well, look, you know, you can lobby for them, but I'm going to be a politician <laughs> here. You know, I've got power. I'm going to use it. And it's pretty good. You know, my household isn't a democracy. I'm yeah. not elected dad. I'm authoritarian. <laughs> I've appointed myself dad. But when our prime minister tells us we can't afford something, yeah. literally what that means is I don't want to do it. And the clearest proof that I can't afford to translates to I don't want to is they just spent $200 billion in the last two months that they weren't planning to spend. If you can afford to spend $200 billion this year, obviously they could have afforded to spend a billion dollars or $2 billion on helping the poorest Australians last year. They didn't spend it because they didn't want to, but rather than take responsibility for their choices, they use economics, they mm. use economists to hide their choices. And isn't that interesting? Now, as I mentioned earlier, Richard and I, we met just after the pandemic began. There was a lot of speculation, a lot of fear. I asked him... What was going to happen to all of the unemployed and underemployed people in Australia in this time of economic uncertainty? Well, that's up to us, you know, and this is this is a really important part of this. It's up to us. We can't talk about the economy as if it's this sort of natural force that kind of comes and does stuff to us, like the weather. How we decide to help our unemployed is entirely up to us. Do we copy what they do in Sweden and Denmark and Norway? Do we take the unemployed and give them free training of their choice to help them find the new career they want to do? You know, do we ensure that they've got enough money to not just pay the rent but participate fully in society while they're getting retrained? Do we want to be like that or do we want to go the kind of American food stamps approach? Because America is a rich country and Norway is a rich country and they treat their unemployed people yeah. entirely different. And we in Australia have agency. We, we have choices. And I, I hope that this crisis leads us to reflect on some of those choices because I hope we don't just treat the unemployed well now. 
Uh, I wish we treated them well when they lost their job when the car industry left. And I hope we treat the next lot of unemployed well in a couple of years' time for whatever reason they lose their jobs. So, yeah, I think we really have to, A, remember we've got choices here, but B, you know, we talk about the entertainment industry. Uh, you're right, there's, I'd, I'd say, around 500,000 people broadly work in entertainment and the arts. To put that into perspective, there's about 50,000 people work in coal mining in Australia. <laughs> so 10 times more people work in entertainment and the arts. But everyone in Australia has heard dozens, if not thousands of times, that it's the coal mines that create all the jobs. Less than 1% of Australians work in coal mining. 99% of us don't work in coal mining. But these kind of misperceptions really harm us when we hit a crisis like this because when the crisis first hit, I, I rang a friend who, who runs a decent-sized, pretty successful entertainment business. I said, oh, man, how are you doing? He said, well, put it this way, Richard, I'm in the business of running non-essential events for more than 500 people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the entertainment industry was literally yeah. the first hit. The entertainment industry will probably be the last part of the economy to be kind of free to go back into business. Yet, to date, the choices the government's made in its decisions on how to treat casuals, I think, is terribly unfair, particularly for young people working as casuals in the entertainment industry. I, there's time for the government to change their mind. I suspect they will. But, yeah, the, the first people to take it were the entertainment industry. And we don't, as Australians, understand what a big employer that is. It's colossal, and 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 as, as I guess you know, there's so many things we could go into as far as how much we as a nation rely on the labour of people who have come to this country quite recently, who we expect to pay tax but may not be able to participate fully in all that our nation has to offer as far as the benefits of paying that tax. I'll say, it's a tricky pickle that we've we've got ourselves into. What do you think is the opportunity here. You say that like at this point we're still yeah, we're on the roller coaster. We're still doing loops right now. Where there's no way we're not even close to realizing, oh shit, I guess we're on this roller coaster for a while. We're still on the first upside down part at this <clears> point. We're still like, ah hands in the air, like what the fuck's gonna happen, right? What are our opportunities here? Because you know, with every crisis comes an opportunity to go, well, hang on a second, this is broken. How can we rebuild it? How can we maybe rebuild it better? What are our opportunities here when it comes to, say, for example, how we treat the unemployed? What are opportunities there? Uh, look, we've got, well, A, we can just be more generous to them, to the unemployed, and B, we can be more generous to a broader range of people. The current government policy is pretty harsh for a lot of casuals and very harsh for a lot of people working in Australia on temporary visas. So there's the actual, you know, how do we treat the unemployed themselves? I think the short answer there is hopefully more generously. But the, the really big question is, so what do we as a society do not just to kind of be nice to unemployed people, but what do we do with the fact that we're going to have one and a half million people who can't find work in the private sector? Now, economists kind of know the answer to this, just some people don't like it. Back in the Great Depression, we had mass unemployment and the Great Depression lasted for so long because in the early years, governments kind of just, you know, blamed the unemployed and gave them some food stamps and let them queue up for soup and, and kind of just hoped that everything would get better. But things didn't get better. We made things better. My favourite example of this is, you know, the east coast of New South Wales and Victoria. It's dotted with beautiful Art Deco ocean baths. 
Now, there's a hint there, Art Deco. When do you reckon they were built? In the 30s. Why were they built in the 30s? Because we had mass unemployment and state governments went and actually created jobs. We talk about creating jobs all the time. It's, it's actually quite literal. We need to employ people to do useful things. If the private sector can't create enough jobs for people to do useful things, the public sector can and should step in. No one suggests that public sector teachers and public sector nurses don't do important work. It's central to our economy. Well, back in the 1930s, state and federal governments, mainly state governments, figured out the only way we were going to get out of the Depression was to spend money creating jobs to pay people to do useful things. And 100 years, nearly 100 years after those ocean baths stopped creating jobs, they're still creating joy. Like we actually today have better lives because 100 years ago, people built really good, useful stuff for their community. The Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Great Ocean Road, right? These projects were built in the 30s, literally to soak up hundreds of thousands of people who couldn't find work in the private sector. So if, and it's a giant if, if we want to not just be nice to unemployed people, but actually help ourselves and help those people and help future generations, we need to spend the next couple of years, and it will take that long, we need to spend the next couple of years literally creating jobs that in the short term pump income and activity into the economy, and in the long term leave lasting benefits. And at the moment, you know, the government's not there yet. They're still talking about a snapback and they're talking about temporary and targeted policies. Well, credit where credit's due. They've uh, Two months ago, they were worried about a budget surplus. Today, they've blown $200 billion on the first instalment. They haven't quite figured out what the next six months and even three years are going to look like. But if we're serious about creating a lot of jobs, if we're serious about helping not just the economy but society going forward, then we need to have mass employment creation. And not everyone's going to get a job with a shovel building stuff. Let's think creatively. There's a whole bunch of unemployed scuba divers on the Great Barrier Reef today. There's no tourists up there. We should be paying them to go kill all the crown of thorn starfish that have been eating our reef for years. Like it's a great time to fix that problem. Every public building in Australia needs a, a spruce of paint and some new carpet. Every stinking public toilet block in Australia that we've just ignored for decades should just be bulldozed and build a new one. The National Archives would love it if people would sit at home and help electronically categorise and scan millions of old newspapers and books that are going to literally fall to pieces and be lost to us forever if we don't digitise them soon. We need to think big about what are the projects that we could do today that would create jobs today, provide income today, and deliver lasting benefits for decades or centuries. We know how to do it, we just haven't got there yet. We actually have a lot more power over the economy than we realise, certainly more than we're led to believe. We'll hear more from Dr Richard Dennis in just a moment, including what he predicted the economy would look like right now. It's interesting. That's going to happen right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It is interesting to look back, knowing what we know now to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, when Dr. Richard Dennis, the economist, and I first had a conversation, and I did ask him, what's the economy going to look like at the end of this pandemic? At the end of this crisis, we're not going to have the same economy we had on the way in. The economy is permanently changing. 10 years ago, all right, let's go 15 years ago, no one had heard of a smartphone. There was no smartphones. No one had ever heard of one. 20 years ago, no one had the internet at home. You know, once upon a time, we watched movies, we recorded them at home on our our VCRs. And 20 years ago, and I mean this quite literally, 20 years ago, almost no one in Australia went out and paid for coffee. 20 years ago, we were drinking Nescafe, you know, maybe, maybe Macona if we were fancy. The world has changed radically in the last 20 years. The world will change radically in the next 20 years. The direction that it changes in is up to us. The shape of the economy we build is up to us. And look, I have sympathy for people who are in the fast-moving consumer goods business, but I had sympathy for people who were in photo development lab businesses. I had sympathy for people who were in the video cassette business. I had sympathy for people who did all sorts of things that we don't do anymore. So, We've been trained to believe that ripping out new kitchens and replacing them is good for the economy. We've been trained to believe that buying more pants than we could possibly ever wear is good for the economy. But the economy doesn't want you to waste money on pants. Imagine if instead of buying a foot spa for your relatives at Christmas or a book that they won't read or a shirt that they hate, Imagine if instead of doing that, you bought them a massage voucher or piano lessons or French lessons or personal training experience or the idea that we have to buy stuff, physical stuff with resources and energy embedded in it that we don't need and that to do that, is, quote, good for the economy, is nonsense. It's good for the part of the economy that sells crap we don't need. And if we, just as we decided we were going to spend a lot of money on coffee and that led to enormous employment in the cafe industry, well, if we stopped buying crap that we don't use and started spending money on on human services, then the crap-selling part of the economy would shrink the massage and personal training and violin lesson part of the economy would grow. The economy doesn't care. There's no such thing as the economy. It's just the sum of all those parts. And every time we blow a hundred bucks on something, we're kind of voting for what shape we want the economy to be. 
the size will be about the same. It's the shape we control. It's extraordinary what you described there as the two alternatives or the two options you could take there. You talked about the energy embedded in the thing, like what can I hold up? My water bottle that I adore. This is the longest water bottle I've had. I haven't, I, Excellent. I, I haven't been flying a lot, so I haven't been leaving it on a plane. I've got so many of these damn things on planes. But when I think about the energy that's gone into mining the ore, the energy to smelt the metal, the, the transport that brought it to Hawaii where I bought it and then brought it back with me. You mentioned the energy embedded in this thing. It's colossal. And the carbon yep. carbon footprint embedded in this thing that I hold in my hand is, is colossal. To then hold it in my hand and go, hey, thanks, Merry Christmas, put it on a shelf, 18 months later, in a bin. You know, that is an absolute crime. But on the other hand, you're talking about purchasing things that are experiential, that bring value and ongoing input to someone's experience of life. And, and all the things you mentioned involve you connecting with another human being. I don't know if you meant to do that, but I kind of like that because if there's one thing that we're all missing right now and valuing greatly, it is in connecting with other human beings. We were so, we self-isolated before this shit started in our phones on a crowded bus. We were alone, right? But mm. here we are going, if only I could talk to someone, you know, it's extraordinary what this is doing to us. Let me ask you on the, um, as we put this back together, what has this crisis, what has this uh, pandemic exposed as far as our vulnerabilities about employment goes and how we treat people who might not have full-time employment? Oh, look, it's exposed so many things. And there's an old saying that, you know, it's only when the tide goes out, you see where the rocks are. Well, you know, the tide's gone out and uh, we've we've built a labour market in Australia now, which is quite different from the one we had 30 years ago. You know, once upon a time, most people in Australia who had a job had a full-time job. Most people who had a full-time job had sick pay and holiday pay and, and a sense of connection to their employer. Now we have enormous rates of casualisation. We have enormous numbers of people working in the gig economy as kind of, you know, allegedly running their own business, but actually just working at the behest of someone else. So we've made a very precarious labour market where a lot of people were, were sailing pretty close to the edge and, you know, they're making it work. But then, you know, something like this comes along and a whole bunch of people that were only just getting by have found themselves in a very, very, very vulnerable position. So, yeah, our, our labour market rules are, are really unique in the developed world. Again, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, all those Nordic countries have entirely different approaches to protecting workers. And, and they're, you know, very productive, very wealthy countries. They just they've gone a different path than us. We've we've Americanized so much in the last 20 or 30 years and unfortunately this crisis is going to reveal that. We can fix it if we want to. Like we have agency. It's not beyond our wit or our control, but the stories we've told ourselves for years are that we're helping all these casuals by stripping away all of their job security and all of their sick leave. You know, look at America now, terribly sick people who have to go to work because they've got no money, making everybody else sick. Do we want to be more like that or, or more like we used to be? Food for thought, isn't it? Food for thought. It's a really interesting conversation. Dr. Richard Dennis is on Twitter. You can follow him at RDNS underscore TAI. And his latest book is called Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy. I, I like economists because they really are where human behavior meets the bottom line. 
And it's fascinating stuff. I find it really interesting. Dr. Richard Dennis is a, is a great conversation and the, the full chat is, is really good. You can scroll back through the podcast feed to listen to it. It's a great conversation and um, it really made me think differently about a lot of things. I'll be back here on Friday. Until then, thanks for being a part of the show. Sleep well and dream beautiful things. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.